the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Since our readings last week, years have passed. Most of that time finds David having family problems. Family problems is probably understating it. His children were involved in rape, revenge, and finally rebellion. His son Absalom, angered over his father's decisions over the years, gathers the goodwill of the people. And then he goes to Hebron and declares himself king and seems to have the backing of the nation. David gathers his, most of his family and leaves Jerusalem ahead of Absalom's arrival. With him are his bodyguards and his fiercest supporter. Now, we're, we're skipping over chapters here, so I want to talk about one particular incident. There's a very powerful interlude in the 15th chapter. As David is leaving Jerusalem, Zadok the high priest and the other priests and the Levites come out of the city with the Ark of the Covenant, and they stop, and they start sacrificing as everyone else is leaving. They're making sacrifices on behalf of David and for the country. And when the city is about emptied, Zadok and the Levites are ordered by David to return. David tells him, take the Ark of God back to the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. The ark then returns to Jerusalem. The Bible says that David goes up on the Mount of Olives and begins to weep. He ends up sending one of his trusted advisors back into the city to be a double agent. Over the next few chapters, we see David fleeing, and he finds people that bless him and people that curse him along the way. Absalom takes Jerusalem and he acts like the conquering hero. His trusted counselor tells him to take the many he has on hand right now, chase down David and finish the job. David's plan to convince his Absalom that he's there to serve whoever's on the throne says no, it's way too dangerous. You know David, you know his men, they're fierce warriors. If they even gain a small victory... It will get blown out of proportion into a great catastrophe, and you'll lose. Wait and gather the whole army, and then march to fight. It's important to remember in those days that the majority of the army were farmers and bakers and artisans. It takes time to gather the army together. It's like the Minutemen in the Revolutionary War. While Absalom's waiting, he builds himself a pillar and he waits. When the armies fully gather, they march out to fight David. And in the meantime, David's been gathering his army as well. On the morning of the fight, David prepares to join his men in battle, and they tell him to wait here. Why? If some of us die, the battle continues. If something happens to you, it's all lost. The king makes one request that we read about this morning. Spare his son Absalom if you find him. David wants his generals to deal gently with Absalom. They go out, they have the battle, Absalom loses, and as he is fleeing, he gets caught in a tree. He's helpless. In the verses that we skipped this morning, we see that some of David's men find Absalom and go and report it to Joab, his general. Joab wants to know why they left him alive. 
Joab would have given them a good reward. And they look at, and one of them looks at him and says, the king said to deal mercifully with his son. You offered me a hundred times that. I wouldn't go against the orders of my king. Joab's frustrated, takes his, takes his bodyguards, his shield bearers, and goes out. Joab strikes the first couple of blows, and then as we read in our scripture this morning, his men finish the job. Joab blows the trumpet, and they quit pursuing the rebels. They bury Absalom and send a messenger to tell David. And when he hears it, he breaks down, and he mourns for his son. Out of the depths I have called to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let, my, let your ears consider well the voice of my supplication. Our psalm this morning is a psalm of ascent and a penitential psalm. It's one of deep repentance. Unlike last week's psalm that says David wrote it when he was caught with Bathsheba, this one's not directly tied to our story. It has that sense of deep mourning and loss that we see in David's reaction. If we were to continue the story down a few more verses, we'll learn David just can't snap himself out of the morning. His sorrow is too deep. Joab eventually has to go to him and sit him on the throne so that his men can have a big victory celebration. And David spends even more time mourning. The people that are close to David seem shocked by his reaction. Shouldn't he be happy over the good news of others' deaths and his victory? We have to remember when we read the Bible, we're not getting everything that happens to David. It's not his diary. And it's not a hagiography. We don't just get the good parts, the parts that make him look heroic. It's all there. The good, the bad, and in the case of our Old Testament readings the last few weeks, the ugly. Let's hold that thought for a moment and look at our gospel. We begin with the same verse we ended on last week. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. There's a small section of John that we didn't read this morning that help explains why we get the reaction of complaining over the next few verses. Jesus then tells them, But I said to you that you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. He tells them he's from heaven, and also tells them this bread from heaven. And I'm sure that brought to their minds Psalm 78, where it's written, Because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power, he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven and rained down on them manna to eat and gave them grain from heaven. God gave them manna in their disbelief. Jesus is telling them that they don't believe God. The day before, the very day before, Jesus had fed 5,000 people out of one person's lunch. Many of them had seen the healing that he brought to the sick. They brought their family, they brought their friends to him for healing, and he did. And when he talks about their unbelief, what do they do? They remind him he's Joseph's son. In turn, he reminds them what was alluded to in the prophet Jeremiah and written plainly in Isaiah. Isaiah 54, 13 says, All your sons shall be taught by the Lord. And now the Lord was here teaching them just as he promised. And he tells them to remember, their forefathers ate man in the wilderness, and they were now dead. But I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world 
is my flesh. A couple of decades later, in writing to the Ephesians, Paul had just gotten done telling them they had to live in unity as a family, as the church. He told them they had to take off their old mind and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, put on the new nature, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. And because we have changed, we have to quit lying. We have to not allow our anger as an excuse to sin. We have to change. And not to just stop doing the wrong things, we also have to start doing the right things. It's like we promised in our baptismal covenant. We resist Satan, we resist sin, and we seek to serve Christ in all persons, loving your neighbor as yourself. For the thief, it's not just that they have to stop stealing and become a productive member of society. Paul goes on to tell them that they do it so they can also help the needy. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Put away bitterness, anger, malice, and instead be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, as Christ has forgiven you. We live in a broken world that often shows us true ugliness. Who then should we be acting like? I'm sure for many of Paul's readers, they would have maybe said David. But we're not to imitate David. And I'm sure that hurt their feelings. He was the king that they all compared themselves to. He was the hero they all wanted to be. A man after God's own heart. But we're not to allow our worldly influence and power to cover up our mistakes and sins. To make us look better than we ought to. With no thought of consequences for what happens to other people. We're not to be like Joab. Joab was probably the greatest general in Israel's history. Every time in the Bible that we see it, David went out to fight. Who was his right-hand man? Joab. Who did David send to go and conquer in his name? Joab. But Joab was ruthless and pragmatic and disobeyed what needed to be done. How then do we look at the Old Testament? Paul says in Galatians, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. In the Old Testament, we see how the world was broken into sin, but we see God's mercy. As our psalmist writes, with him there is plenteous redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all their sins. And we see a lot of sin and a lot of mistakes. We have to fully engage with it to understand how the world got to the climax of history. And that climax is Jesus. But we're not going there to look for people to imitate. Who should we be imitating then? Paul tells them, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We have to imitate Christ. We are to imitate God in the example of Christ. To live in love. And we use his example, the love that Paul talks about throughout Ephesians. The one, other verses that we've read. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you, are, you have been saved. To know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Or, speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. Therefore, our imitation should be that of Christ, and not of someone else. 
The same love that Christ showed us is how we are to live our life. Not with hatred and division, but with love. And not just in our words, but in our actions. Amen.